Dear Father, thank you, Lord, that you've gathered our friends. And, and thank you, Lord, for the teaching in Acts, for the lessons that you plan to bring us tonight. May our patience and our diligence in listening be met, Father, with a wonderful work of the Spirit in our heart. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 6. Today we begin the story of Stephen. Commonly known, though, as the first martyr of the church. He was also the first deacon of the church, and deacons have traditionally played the role of martyr ever since. The story has two parts, or two divisions, and they neatly fall in two chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7. So clearly we'll only do one of those parts tonight, chapter 6. And as we come into next week, we will cover the second part. Chapter 6 tells the story of why and how Stephen received his appointment as, as a deacon, as well as recounting his witnessing of the gospel as he goes out in his new role. The first time he goes out, or one of the early times, he has a chance to witness. Now, chapter 7 covers Stephen's martyrdom. And that includes, as you probably know, a famous monologue, an extended uh, soliloquy from Stephen as he is being called to defend himself against these charges, these trumped-up charges. And in this soliloquy, he summarizes God's plan for redemption. And he reveals some things in this soliloquy that are not even revealed anywhere else in Scripture. So he has been given a kind of insight that extends our knowledge of God's uh, revelation. It's a remarkable scene and a remarkable testimony, which we'll cover when we look at chapter 7 next week. At the end of chapter 7, we're also going to see a hint of Luke's second main character in the book of Acts. Remember, there's two main characters. The first part of the book is about Peter. The second part is about Paul. And though Peter is for the most, has been the only one we've seen so far, the second one's about to appear. And the story of Stephen becomes Luke's link between Peter and bringing Paul into the scene. Peter is sort of the protagonist for the first half. Paul is the protagonist for the second half. But he begins as an antagonist. And the end of chapter 7, you may remember, shows that hint of Saul standing there agreeing with the, the stoning of Stephen. That becomes that link that Luke will use later to bring Paul back into the story. Tonight, though, we start in chapter 5 because we have to cover the last two verses of chapter 5, which I left for tonight, followed, of course, by the events of chapter 6. Acts 5, verse 41. So, this is speaking now about the apostles. So, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In chapter 5, we saw the trial, the second major uh, trial or persecution of the church, the flogging that followed because the apostles had been warned and they refused to obey the words of men. And now as that's over and they're returned to their brethren after the flogging, remember they've been beaten and fairly severely and threatened with more severe punishment should they continue in this stuff, in this preaching in the name of Jesus. And yet we're told they left rejoicing. The reason we're told they rejoiced was the Lord had counted them worthy to suffer shame for his name. Jesus, as you may remember himself in the Gospels, told the disciples they would be blessed when they were persecuted. And you see that in Matthew, for example, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Jesus in the Beatitudes said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. 
For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the disciples knew of this principle, this principle that says when we are persecuted for our faith, and that's a very specific kind of persecution, mind you. It's not just anything, but when our faith is the issue and we're persecuted for it, the response a Christian should have to that, according to Christ, is to rejoice. And the disciples had heard this before and they knew it, and so they're naturally rejoicing now because, truly, it is an honor. Now, the honor comes from the fact that God is using our life to mirror his own son's life. In particular, mirroring his sacrificial death. You remember the old the German Oberammergall? You know, the, the German passion play where they reenact the passion of Christ on stage? Oberammergall is a village in Germany where that passion play was originated and now it's a tradition. But the principle of that is now seen here in real life. The idea that God can use our life to become a play in which he can reenact in real life the same pattern that his son experienced on our behalf. And in the sense that the actor who plays Jesus might feel an honor to be selected to have that role, in real life the honor is all the more sure because you're actually being appointed by God, as the director, so to speak, to play the role, in some sense, of the persecuted truth-sayer. So in that sense, it's an honor. Not every Christian is granted this honor. If you think about it in the way Jesus himself said it in verse 12 of Matthew 5, you realize it is an honor you would want to seek. He said, your reward in heaven is great. It's interesting that this is the text before me because I'm in the middle of a little family discussion where my mother has decided that I shouldn't be taking these risky trips to Juarez. And I understand it and I appreciate it. But I wrote back to her and I said, you're asking me to forfeit something eternal to preserve something I can't keep. You're asking me to forfeit something eternal so that I can try to preserve something that won't last, that being my earthly life. Would you make the same bargain? Would anyone? The problem isn't a fear in the long run. The problem is a lack of of appreciation of the eternal, of looking too close to your life and not see things with eyes for eternity. I should rejoice and be glad if they persecute me as they did the prophets before me. When I sit and make a decision about where I go in ministry, if my decision is influenced by a concern of my earthly safety or life and death, then I am effectively making this bargain. I am saying that what I have now is worth more to me than what I stand to gain in eternity. I've, I've done that whether I know it or not. And what, what the disciples have come away with is an appreciation that when God said that they would be persecuted, he's right, because this is the first uh, physical assault recorded as a result of our faith, of, of, of the faith. And they recognize now we've been chosen for this honor and they can come back rejoicing over it. The rejoicing here is specifically in the scriptures accounted because they said they are considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's their reason for rejoicing. God's purpose in granting it then and in this way seems to be preparation for what we're going to study now in chapter 6. In other words, this event is not an isolated event disconnected from the narrative. It's really what propels the narrative forward into the story of Stephen. Because remember, the early leaders of the church were the apostles. And the apostles are hardly the only ones in the church who are going to suffer persecution for their faith, right? It's not, a, it's not limited to them. But God has determined not to bring the apostles to death right away. The apostles need to live for a while. They have work to do, and the church needs them for the short term at least. They will, for the most part, all be martyred. But in the immediate future, they can't be martyred for God's purposes. So who's going to be martyred if not the apostles? Enter Stephen. 
it stands to reason that other disciples will be appointed the blessing of being called to suffer shame for Jesus' name to the point of death before even any of the apostles are given that honor. So the narrative is moved forward in the direction of that to make clear that the apostles are going to suffer shame and they're going to die as, men as well at some point. But for the short term, it's going to transfer to some of the other disciples. So that leads us to Stephen. So as you might expect, the apostles gladly ignore the command of this council yet again and they keep teaching, they keep preaching. And at the end of chapter 5, we see that they are in the temple, in the house, houses, doing exactly what they know God has called them to do. And then we go to chapter 6, verse 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So at this time, we see at the beginning here, the church is growing and the growth, as you might imagine, brings some growing pains. Christians are people and anytime people gather, relationship difficulties will emerge. It's inevitable. I know it's often a disappointment when we see conflict within the body of Christ, but really don't ever be surprised by that. It's natural in the sense that people are a part of the process and so they'll have these issues. The solution to that kind of disunity, though, is just the same every time. Strong leadership centered in the Word of God, understanding the Word of God. So here we're witnessing the second example in the early stage of this church of an internal threat to the church, to the unity of the church. The first example of that internal threat was Ananias and Sapphira, their love for money. I read one commentator who said this tongue-in-cheek, but he said the first example was money, the second one was women. It's always money and women. In this case, it says a complaint arose, but the term in Greek for complaint is gogusmas, which literally is translated murmuring, a kind of secret complaining. So we're looking here at the kind of discontent that's percolating just behind the, the scenes, below the surface, so to speak, and therefore it's threatening to erupt into something more serious. So, you know, it's the kind of thing that drives division over time if it's not dealt with in the church. The two groups that are involved here, are Jews from different origins. So the Hellenistic Jews, the first group, they're Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora. That's a term. Diaspora refers to the region outside of Palestine, Asia Minor primarily, where there were Greek settlements, Roman cities, Greek-influenced, Hellenistically-influenced cities, where Jews from the land, from Palestine, in previous generations had migrated outward and into these Hellenistic uh, into the diaspora, into these Hellenistic cities. But then at a later point, their descendants, now having grown up in these Hellenistic culture, cultural cities, decided they wanted to return to Palestine. They re-immigrated, if you will. Now they come back into the land of Palestine, in this case into Jerusalem, knowing Greek and not Hebrew, speaking the language from their culture rather than the language of their people group. 
They have a relatively liberal view of the law and of cultural, uh, of Jewish culture. They grew up in a culture of Greek paganism, not in a, in a strictly orthodox Jewish culture. So they have a mixture of views there. So if you want to broadly type them, they're liberal versus conservative. So they come back in. And what, what they find when they come back in as they settle in the land is the native Hebrew Jews. Hebrew is a reference to a Jew who speaks the language Hebrew and probably Aramaic as well, but also probably kept all of the strict customs and the law and were very much in the orthodox style and therefore you could call them conservative. Well, we see that today. It's been that way probably forever that the conservative versus liberal points of view will conflict. So there's been a long history of tension between these groups on, on all kinds of levels going back before Christ's arrival. The Hebrews were considered haughty. They were proud about, they were the old, old money. You know, they were, they'd been there forever. And the liberal Hellenistic Jews were um, the newcomers, the intruders from their point of view. In this story, we hear both these groups had their respective widows. Now, a widow, as you know already, was an especially vulnerable member of society. We've covered that here, I know, in the past. And the church in this day had placed an emphasis on showing respect for those vulnerable people, for the widows. It may have been one of the reasons why the church was held in such high regard in the city. Because in contrast to this approach, which, by the way, was the biblical approach, going all the way back to the Old Testament. In contrast to that, the Pharisees had all but dismissed the plight of widows. They had moved to the point of declaring that a widow was a widow because of something her or her family did to deserve that problem. So, and, and you see this reflected in the, in the way they would cheat widows out of their money and all the things that Jesus accuses them of in the Gospels. So here's a society that had lar- largely turned their back on widows while at the same time the church was showing true love and regard in the way God intended. So they were standing out in that positive sense again. And the church supported those widows by taking collections and sharing that wealth with the widows, either in the form of money or in the form of food. Somewhere along the way, though, in this church, the process began to break down. The widows, were told, of the local Hebrew Jews were receiving a disproportionate share of the support, more than they should. And it was coming at the expense of the Hellenistic Jews. The text says the widows of the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked or shortchanged is literally what the word would mean. How would something like this arise? How do you get to the point where a growing, loving, communal, self-sacrificial church led by no less than the apostles themselves gets to the point where they're having this kind of an issue in the church? Today, we might assume that this was the fault of a church leader, for example, who is biased uh, or incompetent, and they're responsible for directing these programs in the wrong way. But at this point in the church history, there are only the apostles. There are no other leaders. And I think we can all safely assume and agree that the apostles themselves were not the kind of men who would have condoned, much less initiated this kind of favoritism. And so if we rule out the possibility that it was the apostles orchestrating this unfair situation, that leaves us with only one conclusion. The unfair distribution of the food was the result of the congregation itself conducting the distribution in a cooperative fashion, but yet in a biased outcome. It's leaderless. The population of the body itself would work this through properly, and in the course of that happening, it wasn't going fairly. Probably because there was a greater number of Hebrew Jews in the early church relative to the number of Hellenistic Jews. So if it's left to mob rule, so to speak, 
then the majority of the group starts to, to control what's going on and the minority starts to suffer as a result. Seeing this complaint, this dispute, you should start to notice a pattern here emerging in Luke's account. The enemy is going to work continually throughout the book of Acts to divide the church in two fundamental ways, either over temptations in the body itself, over money or possessions or honor or pride or food or whatever. Think Ananias and Sapphira, of course, and now this situation. So it's, it's the enemy using the flesh temptations to drive a wedge in the body, or he works to intimidate the spread of the gospel through persecution outwardly. So either an internal struggle driven by the flesh or an external struggle driven by the enemies of the gospel. Those are his two blunt instruments and he just keeps using them over and over and over again. So Luke keeps moving between them so that you see the effect in the early church. Now, this incident leads you into the rest of chapter six, of course, because it must have highlighted to the apostles the need for additional leadership in the church to watch over these processes. So in response to the arguments that are going on, the apostles act. And here's what they do. They bring the whole congregation together and notice the details, because the details here become important for understanding what's being modeled. The entire church comes together. Then the apostles announce the need for additional leaders. The reason is obvious. If they've got any idea at all about this dispute, they'll already understand the need for a leader to step in. But they say the, need for the, the needs of this church have grown beyond the capability of 12 men to handle everything that's going on. That was inevitable, right? With the growth we've seen over the last two chapters, every time we hear the church mentioned, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. Now the question is, how do you handle that much growth with 12 guys? Think of parallels today. Okay? The apostles expressed the need for this change by saying it is not desirable or in literal words, the Greek is it's not pleasing for them to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, let's consider what they've just proposed or said there. First, the word pleasing that suggests, I think, that the apostles know there is an audience watching their behavior, watching their decisions and their actions in the role of apostle. And that audience, of course, is the Lord. So when he says it is not pleasing, I think the implication is to the Lord. So it is not pleasing to the Lord that we would set aside the teaching of God's word to wait tables. Now, he is not that is not a pejorative comparison. This is not meant to suggest that waiting tables is an unworthy or a unimportant task. They're only making it less important by comparison. Not in some absolute sense is it unworthy, but, but compared to the task of teaching God's word, it becomes less important to the, to the extent that it cannot take the precedence over the teaching of God's word. The second thing they say is, it will displease the Lord if they neglect the word of God for lesser activities. There is a dichotomy, a mutually exclusive choice being proposed there. Because some might look at the problem and say, well, you don't have to neglect the word of God to wait on the tables. You just got to manage your time better and you'll get it both done. You can get both done. Just just manage your time better. What they're saying, though, is that any minute, any second of time given to something other than the teaching of the word of God is neglect on the part of someone who's been appointed to teach the word of God. It comes down to the basic question of, what is it we're supposed to do? What is our role in the body of Christ? And their conclusion in the way they've stated this principle is our job 
is to teach the Word of God, and without any other qualifiers attached, it's a given that nothing else should take time away from that task. And there's a second part to this. There's a corollary to this. It's not as though there isn't another human being on earth. You see, the point is, to com- for them to conclude that they could manage their time and do enough teaching of the Word to get by while they're doing these other tasks, is to conclude that they have to be involved in these other tasks, which suggests there's no one else who can do them. You see, it's, it's folly, it's pride at the end of the day to think you have to do it all. So in this situation, they are saying it would displease the Lord if we set about using any time he's given us in this ministry to do anything less than what he's asked us to do, which is teach the word of God. It's disobedience. So the highest levels of leadership in the church in that day being the apostle were to be primarily, if not exclusively, devoted to teaching God's Word. To do otherwise would not be pleasing to the, to the Lord. So the question now comes to us, is this a unique requirement for the apostles, or does this live on in some other way? And I would argue that by what Paul teaches in the letters, emphasizing, for example, to Timothy that he needs to preach the Word, that it does live on. It's not a uniquely uh, an apostle call. It is a common call to the church forevermore that the Word of God have a preeminent position in the church and that there be some who have a preeminent role to do the teaching and do nothing else but that. And when you understand the importance of God's Word in the life of the body of Christ, this makes perfect sense. To remove the teaching of God's Word from the life of the body is to leave it adrift and to take away that that fuel for the engine of the Spirit to do the work of sanctification in the body and to do the work of justification for those who would hear the Word of God and be saved. If you take the Word of God out, it's taken the heart out of the church. So to the extent the Word is diminished because of anything else, it's a detriment to the church as a whole, whether we realize it or not in the moment. So as long as there is a leader in present in the church, that leader's role is preeminently teaching God's Word. It has to be. There's no greater thing to be done. If you took the CEO of the company and you found him cleaning a toilet in the, in, the, in the company headquarters, and he looked at you and he said, well, I've got plenty of time to do the other stuff, but I saw this needed to be done too. Would you start to question the man's judgment? Would you start to worry about what's not getting done at the top? Would you not ask the question, why don't you find the janitor and have him do it? It's not to say that doing something other than teaching God's word is the equivalent of cleaning a toilet. I'm not trying to make some ridiculous comparison. But it is to say that there are responsibilities and commensurate jobs to be done, and those jobs do have priority, at least in the sense that we can put the word of God above anything else that needs to be done within the body of Christ, because it's the fuel for every other activity. The guidance, the the plumb line, the reason for what we do. So, nothing can come before that duty among those who would lead. And I think it's worth remembering, and I would argue, make this argument all day long, that the model being presented here is that the role of a congregational leader, which today we might use the word pastor or elder, is to teach God's Word first and foremost. That's why Paul says they have to be able to teach. That's why that's a principal requirement to have the duty. Other duties can be performed by other leaders. And in my opinion, if you wanted a real practical test of that, the pastor's weekly schedule should be dominated by teaching or preparation for teaching in their weekly schedule. Dominated by it. It should be such a heavy component of their schedule that it's almost impossible for them to do anything else. And I know how in a pastoral ministry it can happen, right? You've, you've got the, the administration of a big building and a lot of people contending with your role as a teacher and they see you as the guy in charge, so you've got to do all those things. 
John MacArthur's ministry, as I understand it, and you know more about it, I think, maybe than I do, but he has been very careful at remaining only the teaching pastor for his church, and everything else is handled by somebody else, by and large. It takes somebody with a real a devoted passion for the Word to come to that conclusion, and, and an ego kind of separating yourself from your own ego in some sense to say, I don't have to be the guy in charge of everything. I just want to teach. That's what I'm here to do. That's tough. So I told you earlier, look for parallels here in the day-to-day life of today. The apostles bring the congregation together. They announce the decision. So what is the problem? The problem is church growth. What is the result? Too much to be done administratively. What's the solution? What was their solution? Bring the congregation together. Announce the need. Make clear, and in doing so, I think, make clear three things to the congregation. Teaching God's Word is preeminent. What a great message to the church that their leadership stood in front of the congregation and said, I know you need to be fed. We recognize that's important need. I'm sorry. If I do that, I wouldn't be able to teach the Word of God. I'm not willing to make that sacrifice. What a great testimony to the value and the importance of God's Word to hear that come from the leadership. Number two, they say other needs will be met, but by lesser or other leaders. So they don't say the needs can't be met. They don't say it won't be solved, but they say it's going to have to be solved by somebody else. Don't come looking to me to solve all your needs. Wouldn't it be nice if, here again, the pastors or elders of a church said, hey, I know the grass needs to be mowed. Why don't you guys figure that out? We know the building needs to be painted. What are you going to do about it? And third, these leaders, by virtue of it being a public appointing, gain the backing of the apostles. They clearly have the apostles' backing. They're not left to their own. But where does the solution come from? The congregation. What is said? Look at the selection process. The selection process for the seven. Who selected them? The congregation. In other words, this is a congregational movement to identify those that, from outward manifestations of the Spirit, are clearly being anointed and raised and called and equipped into this role of service. It is self-evident by who they are and what they do. It is not competitive. It is not a paid staff hiring. It is not coming through a kind of corporate style thought process. It is a movement of the Spirit within the body to address the needs of the body as those needs come to to bear on the body. And then as those men, and in some cases it could be women, are raised into this role. I'm I'm not saying women would be called necessarily an elder or deacon, but I'm saying at any level of leadership, men and women could be called into serving to support a need in the ministry. As those calls go out and as those calls are met and the congregation responds, then it says that the leaders here, the the apostles, appoint and anoint those leaders. So it's not that it's all kind of just by vote. I mean, there is an anointing. There is a, I mean, an appointing process. There is a role for the senior leaders in that that church, organization, whatever it is, to step in and acknowledge that this is the right appointment and confirm it. But it came out of the body. It is the body at work. And I know we've said this before, and I will continue to say that the book of Acts was not written as a manual for church operation. But nonetheless, this practice here, I think, is intended as prescriptive because it is consistent with things Paul writes himself later as a manual to the church. When he writes to Timothy, when he writes to Titus, when he writes to the church in Corinth, there are things said in those letters that confirm this model. So I think here we have an example, though, where it is more prescriptive because of things that are said later in the, in the New Testament. This is, I would argue, the practice for identifying leaders within the body to support the needs of the body. 
So I am not suggesting you can't pay someone to, to do work within the body of Christ. What I am saying, though, is the rush to hire professional outside services to support the needs of the church is not the biblical model. Would they not have been able to say, let's collect some money, let's go to the local uh, baker, and let's ask him if we can pay him to deliver food here once a day on a regular basis to support these widows, and we can all get on with our normal life and not have to deal with this anymore. They could have. What, what would difference would that have been in the real world? I mean, to the rest of the world. That would have not been the church anymore. That's just a club. So here's the model. Pastoral leadership of a church is a plurality of men who are teachers with manifest authority to conduct the church affairs. They are not beholden to the congregation. The apostles weren't elected or nominated. The sheep do not select the shepherd. The sheep do not lead the shepherd. The shepherd leads the sheep in a plurality of, of men. Since we don't have apostles today, we would refer to these leaders as elders today. Paul told Titus, for example, to appoint elders. T- Titus 1.5 For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. He didn't say go nominate and elect elders. He said, Titus, you pick them. Find the people you think God has called and equipped who have the, the teaching background and have the maturity and you put them into place as the leadership over the church so that the sheep have shepherds. But then, below that level of leadership, as the needs of the body start to become expressed and you have to find people to support that work so that you stay focused on teaching, that's what the elders are going to stay focused on, the congregation selects deacons, the leaders then appoint those deacons to their service, and then those deacons go out and administer to the needs of the body, minister to the needs of the body. The both levels of leadership, by the way, have qualifications they have to meet, as you know, probably out of First Timothy and Titus. Both the leaders of the, el- the eldership and the deacons have to meet certain tests of maturity and readiness for leadership. But that's how they become a part of the body. So if we were to create an idealistic uh, Acts 6 church structure, you'd have a group of people who come together in worship, united by the Spirit, focused on teaching and and knowing God's Word and living it out and and living in their community together. And then as needs present themselves in the body, there'd be a leader over that group with a teaching role who would stay focused on teaching and guiding and turn to the body as needs come and ask them to raise up men and women who have the the calling and and the gifting to do it. And then those people begin to lead others in the accomplishing of that work. So it's really like two different kinds of leadership. The ones who are teaching at the top in a role or leading at the top in a role of teaching by and large, never get involved in the other needs of the body, except to appoint people they can trust or anoint people who can be trusted to do that work. It's that second level of leadership that's really administering to the needs of the body on a regular basis. The requirements here are good reputation and the anointing of the Spirit. And these really summarize all that Paul says in 1 Timothy and Titus. Reputation is martyreo. It's it's from a, a same root from which in Latin we get mature. So they are of good qualification or good reputation or mature. And literally in Greek, the word means witness or testimony. So they have a a life and a walk in faith that bears witness to their godliness. So it's about walking the walk. And then it says they must be full of the Spirit, which means having a life that's obviously under the control of the Spirit, influenced by the Spirit. They're living in the Spirit, a Spirit-led life, not a fleshly-led life or carnal life. Now, just lastly, look at the seven men that we listed there. It's a very interesting group, really. First, you get Stephen. Now, he's the one who gets the most attention because of what will follow later in this chapter, of course. Philip is listed second. 
And he's in the second position because we know he has a primary role in chapter 8, a starring role in chapter 8. The rest of these gentlemen, they have no further mention in the Bible, which is not surprising. I mean, they, they played the role of deacon. They didn't necessarily go out and do something so dramatic that it needed to be recorded in Scripture. But what's interesting about the group as a whole is that all the names are Greek. They're all Hellenistic Jews. Every single one. Remember why they were nominated in the first place? Because the Hellenistic Jews were getting shortchanged. Remember how they were selected from the body? And yet, none of them are Hebrew? Now, you might have expected at least an even distribution of sorts, or, or maybe a representative distribution, and maybe even a predominantly Hebrew distribution, if you think about it in the way I stated earlier, that maybe the bulk of the church was Hebrew in that early day. But it was all Hellenistic Jews. And the only way to explain that is that the Spirit of God here was working within the body to correct the bias so that what you ended up now with was a leadership that looked out for the minority even as they tried to administer to the needs of the whole body. It's a reaffirming, I think, of the fact that the Spirit, Christ's Spirit, will grow His church and lead His church. He is not incapable of overcoming the natural biases of people so that the end result is probably a surprising one for everyone, that the first group of deacons all came out of this Hellenistic group. And so I'm sure you can bet the widows from the Hellenistic Jews were getting their fair share after this. It's a, it's a testimony to God's ability to run his own church, if we let him. So now look at the res, result of that step in verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading. The numbers of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So the word of God kept spreading because the apostles were freed from other responsibilities. Remember, if you're taking notes, if if you're noting it in in your memory, don't miss that connection. The word of God kept spreading because there was someone to spread it. Because the apostles were not otherwise occupied waiting on tables. And then in turn, the spread of the word of God led to the further increase In the church, the exceeding number now, as it's quoted here. So there's a direct relationship between the two. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. There's a direct relationship between the two. And then a new element. He says priests, one after another, were coming into the faith. And this this is a remarkable footnote because the priests of that day would have come primarily out of the ruling political party in, in Israel. And remember who the ruling political party is? The Sadducees. So the Sadducees are the chief antagonists of the church at this early stage. And it's from their own number that priests are coming into the faith. You can see God here adding to the church from among the ranks of the enemy. So, there, I mean, though the word is not being used, the, the, the calling out of the Spirit is not sort of obvious in the way Luke is writing this narrative. He's right below the surface. He is on the page throughout in the way decisions are getting made. Courses are being corrected. Influence is being had in areas where you wouldn't expect it. You can see God manipulating is maybe the wrong word, but orchestrating is the right word. Orchestrating all of these things, but it's being done through men in a way that's supernaturally apparent. And the revelation that the priesthood is now turning into the faith is likely the cause, one of the causes of the next episode of external threat. So chapter 6, verse 8 through 14. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen 
including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from uh, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. And we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So Stephen is is working in the full power of the Spirit here, clearly. He's obviously received supernatural gifting. And his gifting includes, if you notice, the ability to perform miracles and to teach with authority. And we know later in chapter 8 that Philip is also given similar powers, if you know the story of Philip and the sorcerer where he's able to uh, do things supernaturally that the sorcerer in that story wants to know how to do. So it's apparent from just thinking Stephen and Philip now for a moment, it's apparent that the seven here, at least some of them, were equipped in a similar fashion to do things that heretofore only the apostles themselves could do. So clearly Stephen and Philip were not capable of doing these things prior to their anointing as deacons. That's something that's now changed. And they're going out now with that power. So their power traces to the apostles, to that moment of laying on of hands. This confirms here again what we've said all along. The apostles alone were gifted with these supernatural powers and they had the ability to transfer that power in a sense, that anointing, to someone they delegated it to. But the delegates could not pass it on. First thing to notice is these men have been given supernatural power. Did they need supernatural power to wait on tables? Remember why they were selected? To feed the widows. Does the connection make any sense? Do you, do you assume now that they had to have the ability to raise men from the dead and cure the blind and the lame so they could get through the process of feeding widows? Doesn't make any sense, does it? So why are they given these powers? Or another way to say it is, what is God at work in doing here if the original need was for waiting of fables? The answer here is that the problem in the fellowship in the church was not the need to feed widows. The problem was a need for leadership. The first problem was the feeding of the widows. It wasn't going to be the last one. Next week, there would have been another one. Next week after that, another one. When the church finally reached the size of 100,000, there probably would have been untold numbers of problems. The issue here was not the problem of feeding widows. The problem was that the church had grown now to the point where God needed the apostles to anoint another level of leadership and for the church to understand the need for it. As leaders were being raised, they're leaders. They're not table waiters, per se. They are a part now of God's under-shepherding of His church. Or, in contemporary terms, what we're saying is that the person who is asked to become involved in ministry, in a church, for example, to serve in some particular regard, must understand that the reason we have expectations for maturity and character and teaching, and so on, when we bring somebody into leadership, it's because we're not asking them to perform a duty, we're asking them to play a role. The point is, today they play drums, tomorrow they evangelize, and the next day they teach a Bible study. There has to be an understanding that the elevation into a leadership role is not based on the need of the moment, it's based on the need for the church to have leadership generally, and as those needs are presented, it's an opportunity to add to the ranks of the leadership. But once there, you're there. And you could be called to do a lot of different things over the course of ministry. 
And so these men have been gifted and called because as you quickly find out, do you see even a first, do you see any mention at all of Stephen waiting tables or Philip? Their mentioning is of doing totally different things. And yet they were called upon because there were some people who were hungry. They had responsibilities to lead and run the congregation, so they were equipped as such. Stephen encounters, as we hear, a group of Hellenistic Jews. And, and just, you've got to love this guy, right? He's just been given this new appointment, and he's off reaching out to the Jews of the city. He goes to a synagogue, and the name of the synagogue here is the Synagogue of the Freedmen. This is the first example of a disciple preaching inside a synagogue in the early church. Paul, as you know, later made this his practice. Every time he'd go to a new city, he would visit the synagogue first, preach in the synagogue, promptly get kicked out, and then he would go somewhere else in the city and try to reach the Gentiles. And this was on the biblical principle that the gospel is sent first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And he was seeking the remnant for whoever they might be. Following that, he went to his primary audience, which were the Gentiles. But at this early stage, that distinction hadn't yet been understood or made. The church is strictly Jewish. So he goes straight to a synagogue. Luke identifies these men here as of the synagogue of freed men. Now, Jewish records from the time indicate that there were somewhere between 390 and 480 synagogues just in the city of Jerusalem. I don't know how they fit them all. In this case, you had literally every corner of the city covered with synagogues. And these synagogues would be differentiated by every different division possible, different cities or cultures or languages or professions. In this case, this is a synagogue devoted to people who had come from families who were once enslaved, maybe to Rome, maybe to someone else. Now they're free. And these are the free men or the the families now or the individuals who were freed themselves from slavery and they wanted to congregate together. So they had a synagogue of freedmen. And we see the same thing in the church today in many ways, don't we? We certainly have divisions according to denomination and creed, but then you go deeper than that and there's you know, the cowboy church and then there's the biker church. and Not a problem, not suggesting that's a bad thing or even that this was a bad thing, but I just want you to see the similarity. It's the same basic premise we see today. They, they found some additional cultural uh, tie to bind them in this religious experience. It can be damaging to do that, by the way, but that's sort of off the point. Other groups were mentioned here. The Cyrenians, those are Jews from North Africa. So there was the synagogue for the North African Jews. The Alexandrians, those would have been Jews from Egypt. So you had the Egyptian Jewish synagogue. Uh, Cilicia, those, that's present-day Turkey. Jews from Turkey then. That last group, Cilicia, that region of Turkey includes the city of Tarsus, which may sound familiar because that was Paul's or Saul's hometown. And we know Saul is going to come up here in just a few Verses in the next chapter. So it's entirely likely that Saul is one of these men being mentioned right now who were contending with Stephen in the synagogue as he is there trying to preach and being arguing against these men. The irony here is really remarkable, right? I mean, think about how we think of Paul today, the master uh, orator or or the master theologian, the man who could have explained anything and, and won any debate and known the depths of God's revelation when he became Paul. But here as Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees trained by Gamaliel himself in the synagogue, up comes Stephen. And Stephen out argues him because of the spirit, because at this point it is Stephen arguing with the revelation of God, not Paul. So Paul is probably arguing, of course, from the pharisaical view of what the scriptures taught. And Stephen is roundly trouncing him and his compatriots 
uh, in terms of the knowledge of Scripture. And you've got to believe that must have made Saul incredibly upset. It may explain a little bit of the fervor of, Paul, of Saul later when he's persecuting the church. It's a wounded pride ego thing, maybe, in part. So since the men couldn't win their arguments, the pride being injured, they, they turn their anger into a conspiracy. They accuse Stephen of blasphemy. They stir up rumors and lies. Uh, remember, the word blasphemy literally, in terms of the legality of it under Jewish law, meant pronouncing the name of God. So literally the term blasphemy only means pronouncing the name of God. That's the only, when you're charged with blasphemy, that's what you're being charged with doing. Well, in this case, that's not what Stephen did. So the charge itself is completely false. He did not pronounce the name of God. That was what Jews meant when they used the word blasphemy. They extend the blame, though they extend it, and they say he's committed blasphemy against Moses. Well, they're starting to misuse the term. They're simply saying he has spoken negatively against Moses and God. What they're probably referring to is the way in which he would have proclaimed that the end of the law, that Jesus is the end of the law, and that the law now has been replaced with a better covenant. Or in the case of God, maybe proclaiming the fact that now the temple itself and the worship process that takes place in the temple has been has been done away with because the, now the temple is the body of Christ and so on and so forth. Any of those kinds of proclamations would have completely thrown the pharisaical view, the pharisaical community into a tizzy. And they would have then kind of taken that, that nugget or that kernel and expanded it through lies and rumors and the like and turned it into something much bigger if they could. That's what apparently they were doing here. So they drag him away to the council for another inquest. And he's accused of two offenses. Notice he's accused of Declaring the end of the temple. That is likely a result of him repeating Jesus' own words. Right? Referring to the fact that the house that God saw in stone on the mount would be torn down and replaced with one made of the body of Christ. That was true, but it wasn't going to be understood. That would have been a statement that would have created offense for the Sadducees. Because remember, they were the ones who protected the temple grounds. They owned that responsibility. They were in charge of the temple police. That was their chief charge as the council was protecting the holy ground of the temple. So when somebody says, I'm going to tear the temple down, you just poked a Sadducee in the eye. And the second charge is destroying the customs of the law from Moses. Now that we know would simply be a reference to the way the law is put to an end by the grace of the new covenant. But that charge would have incited the minority party, which are the Pharisees. So the charges are not random here. The conspiracy cleverly came up with two charges that each would have hit to the heart of the two sides of the ruling party. The Sadducees would have been offended by one and the Pharisees by the other. And so the charges against him are designed to make everyone mad. And then that sets the stage, of course, for Stephen's persecution, which we look at next week. Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, for the time and the word tonight, for our chance to study it at length and in depth and to consider, Father, your call upon the church in, in our forming of leaders and our performing of the duty of leader and the need for teaching. Father, we pray that as we've taught and listened tonight that the message of this teaching of your word would not sit idle in our hearts. I pray, Father, that for this church and many others, there would be a recommitting to the Word of God and a decision to, to appoint leaders with a call and a, and a dedication to teaching that the church would be led by Your Word. And Father, I do pray that we continue to go out and, and show the Word in our lives and then according to Your will, I pray we'd return next week to finish and continue in this study. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Uh, did we... We didn't have any food tonight? Oh, no, there it is. Sorry. Heaven forbid we didn't have anything to eat after the study. But we do have some things back there, so please enjoy a few things on your way out. Thanks for coming. <laughs>